Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The Gospel today is from the book of John, chapters 1 through 6 and 17 through 46. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed him, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told him, told them what he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silence and stillness, still our minds race replaying the past, anticipating the future, or maybe another way to say it is regretting the past and fearing the future. But the one place it's really hard to be is right here, right now. And so in the midst of the static of our lives, all the climbing and achieving, positioning and posturing, we're exhausted and we're anxious. Or maybe things are just going so well for us right now with our affluence and our privilege and our position and just an abundance of entertainment. And we've just fallen asleep. Spiritually, we've fallen asleep. We've developed spiritual amnesia and forgotten our great need for you. Or maybe we've tricked ourselves into thinking we don't need you after all. We come to this moment hungry and thirsty, wanting for you to break through and speak to us and teach us and... We come to this moment cynical, skeptical, wondering if we could actually even believe these things. Some of us remembering a time where you seemed so close to us and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering what happened. But however we find ourselves right now, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, you see us in all of our differences and complexity and contradiction, in all of our beauty and brokenness, and you love us. Your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now, we invite you by the power of your Holy Spirit to break through and teach us 
in a way that our lives would be transformed. Convince us of your great love for us. Wake us up to your grace and send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have been fascinated this week by a book that just came out by Dan Pink. Dan Pink has written seven books. Five of them were on the New York Times bestsellers list. He is a thought leader in how we think, how we make decisions, how we act in community. And his latest book is on regret. And he says the whole mantra of having no regrets, his word in the book is it's BS, but he doesn't use the initials. He says the actual word, but since this is a family church, we're going to keep it at that. He said it's, it's unrealistic. It's unreal. The only people who think that you would have no regrets in this world are delusional or have some sort of you know, uh, physiological incapacity to be able to process regret. And, but in interviewing thousands of people, he narrowed it down to four categories of the regrets that we have. He says regret can be a very powerful tool, a powerful motivator. Of course, distinguishing it from shame that tells you that you are something wrong. But to be able to look back on your life and say, I wish I would have done things differently is a gift. Because you can actually then forward think, what would I do differently next time? Let's learn from the lesson. You can make amends with people. You can do all sorts of really helpful and productive things. And he narrows it down to four different categories of regret. The first one is, an example would be thousands of people said, I, I regret that I didn't study abroad during college. I wish during college I would have gone and studied abroad. I didn't. Or they would say, I wish that I would have asked so-and-so out on a date. I didn't do it. I didn't have the courage to do it. I wish that I would have traveled more. And he, he lumps those together in the category of, I wish I would have taken a chance. I wish I would have had more courage. I wish I would have just gone for it. I wish I would have had some boldness in that moment. Second category is moral regret. I just, I wish I would have done the right thing. I wish I didn't tell the lie when I did. I wish I didn't cheat on this person or those taxes when I did. I wish I would have done the right thing. So the, the moral regret. And then he has the regret of not doing the work. So someone says, I wish I would have quit smoking earlier, or I wish I would have taken care of my body through my diet, or I wish I would have done the work. I wish I would have studied harder for the LSAT or whatever. I wish I would have actually applied myself fully to that thing at that critical junction. And then finally is the, I wish I would have reached out to that person. You know, we had an argument, we were estranged, a lot of time had gone by, and I thought it would be too awkward or not well received, and so I never reached out. And now I, I don't have the opportunity to. I wish I would have reached out. And as a side note on that, he says, so one life hack is, if you're even to the junction where you're wondering if you should reach out, your body and your brain and your soul and your mind and your heart are already telling you you should probably reach out. Intriguing. But regrets. Regrets. Because we come to a passage like today that is about death and life, and it is bright. I mean, it, it, it's full force, full sunshine, sunlight, heat, all of that. Lazarus is dead. Four days dead. Really dead. It's over. And then there's this brilliant moment of new life when the entire path had not only stopped, but was being erased. I mean, there was no way forward for Lazarus, and Jesus provides a way forward, life in the midst of what seems to be literally a dead end. Now, we'll get into all of that. You saw that as Rita read this for us. But what about the thousands of little deaths that you and I experience in our lives? 
The death of, I wish I had more courage in that moment, and I didn't, and I've got to live with that. The death of, I wish I could reach out to that person, and now we're so far away from each other. The death of, I wish I had made a better moral decision, done the right thing, or done the work, or applied myself. The question is, how do you deal with those little deaths that occur every day? Let alone the big losses that we experience in our life. Whether it's loss of relationship, loss of a loved one, loss of a dream that you are now reckoning with the reality, it's probably not going to take place. And you had hoped so badly. It is critical that you have a worldview that is strong enough to hold you through all the ups and downs and uncertainties of life. And scripture, this passage is a great example, is on one hand dazzlingly hopeful. There's new life even in the midst of dead ends. And it's refreshingly honest. Even in life with God, there will be moments of extreme loss and sorrow and confusion. Dazzlingly hopeful and refreshingly honest. Do you have a worldview that is both dazzlingly hopeful and refreshingly honest? Because usually we fall off on one side or the other. You've met people that are dazzlingly hopeful, but they live their life like it's a Hallmark card. And everything's going to be fine. And just believe and let go and let God. And there's a verse for everything and all of that. But they're not grounded in reality and they don't know how to grieve or lament or endure loss. Or you know people who are solidly grounded in grief and lament and loss and honesty and the difficulty of this world. But it's really hard to bring them to a party because they're no fun. But scripture comes to you both hopeful with this resurrection power hope and honest that you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and still you need fear no evil. Friends, do you have a worldview that's that solid, that buoyant, that heavy, that resilient? C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not only because I can see it, but by its light I can make sense of everything else. So for those of you investigating Christianity, considering faith, use this passage as a set of glasses, a set of lenses to look through the world, look at your life, and consider, does this make sense of your existence and of this world? Now, this is a beautiful story because we know how it ends. But the characters, Mary and Martha in particular, are going through it one frame at a time. In hindsight, around the campfire, you say, you remember that time when Lazarus died and then he came back? Yeah, isn't that funny? Lazarus passed the marshmallows, ha, 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 because he's still there. But in the moment, Lazarus is gone. And they've experienced deep loss. And you hear that devastating accusation, honest, authentic questioning of Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? Where are you saying that to God right now? Or may, where maybe you are, may, are you looking for the courage to articulate that to God? Maybe you think that that's off limits. You can't question God like that because it's a sign of a lack of faith. Welcome to the human race and the family of God where he can handle your questions. Where are you asking, God, where were you when I needed you most? Do you even care about me? Are you paying attention to the world right now? Do you see what's going on here? Where are you having those honest conversations with God? In the time we have, let's look at the way that Jesus interacts with our suffering, our pain, and our questions. First, he knows them. He hears them. And second, he responds to them. And finally, he redeems them. First, 
Jesus hears our questions, our suffering, and our pain. Jesus sees our sorrows and he joins you in suffering. That if you had been here, my brother would not have died is an echo of what we hear in conversation throughout scripture as people are honestly lamenting before a loving God. The Psalms of the Old Testament are known as the prayer book of the Bible, and over 60% of them are lament or grief or where were you Psalms. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross repeating that. A God who gives you permission to be authentic and real with your questions and says, I not only can handle it, but I welcome it because I'm with you in your pain and your sorrow. If your pain shouts so loud you can't hear anything else, or your grief and your despair are coming in like a cloud and so you can't feel anything else, or your addiction seems to be moving backward at a million miles per hour and so you can't hope for anything else, you've done everything you can think of, you sought counsel, you've prayed, you've done the right thing, you've honored other people, and it's still not working out the way that you want things to work out. Where are you saying, if only you had been here? If only you cared? Jesus hears that. He listens. He moves toward you. And even as Martha accuses him, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, there's even this nuance of hope intermingled with it. Did you catch that? And even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. This reality of lament and anger and accusation and loss mingled with hope. Even now, Jesus, I know that it's not a dead end for you. This is a picture of being present in grief and loss and questioning and crying and not minimizing and still holding it with hope. He hears your suffering. But he also responds. He responds to your suffering and your questions and your confusion, and he does it in the way that you most need it. He enters into your pain and he responds with tears and with truth. So we see an example of this with both Martha and Mary. And we've met Martha and Mary in other gospels where they are having a little dinner party at their house and Jesus is teaching anybody who would come to him. Mary is sitting at his feet learning like a disciple. Which, by the way, we, we miss this, but in that particular passage, Mary, an ancient Near Eastern Palestinian woman, is choosing to sit at the feet of the rabbi with all the male disciples, basically saying, I want you to let me into Harvard and I'm going to sit in the front of the class. And Jesus says, you made the right choice and you get a degree. That's a whole other sermon. But Mary's a ponderer. She's a thinker. Martha's action-oriented. Maybe Martha's like an Enneagram 8 or an Enneagram 3 with all this forward-leaning energy and she's getting things done. Mary the ponderer, Martha the doer, and now we see these two at the grave of their brother. And so for Martha, she needs the ministry of truth. She comes to him and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, in verse 21. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. 
In fact, he goes on in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Martha comes to him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he confronts her with a ministry of truth. I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, in verse 25 and 26, it seems like he's saying the same thing, right? Is this like good old Jewish Hebrew parallel poetry? I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he's actually saying something similar, but in two different ways. They're distinct. On one hand, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. He is hammering down for Martha in the moment of her fear and concern and uncertainty, what we would call the doctrine of the resurrection. I have conquered all things. Death is not the final word. You shall live forever. He's taking her existential moment of loss and not minimizing it, but casting it in the much bigger story of God's renewal and redemption and resurrection and holding all of that together. But then in verse 26, he's saying something similar but different. He's talking about the spiritual life now. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is talking about a particular quality of life. So the first one is you shall have life that can't be erased by death. There are no dead ends for you. The second is you can have this sort of vibrant, buoyant, hopeful life now. Right? The idea of following Jesus, the prospect of Christianity is not that you can somehow kind of hang in there for 50 or 60 or 70 years until you die and then you go to heaven and you don't worry about anything anymore because you made it to that happy place. The prayer Jesus taught us to pray is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The quality of this never-ending glorious life that is present to you now. This echoes what he said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. If you knew who was talking to you, as she was an outsider who had been scorned by her community, pushed out, left alone, not let in, and he says, I would give you living water that will well up to eternal life. And he's not talking about the afterlife. He's talking about now. Why does that matter? Here's why that matters. Because all of us face the prospect of death, right? The only thing that's certain is death and taxes, and if you cheat on your taxes, that's not even certain. But death is certain. Jail time might be certain if you cheat on your taxes. I should probably finish that sentence. But we race against the clock. We spend all sorts of money on treatments and programs and ideas and ideologies to just try to tell us that we're not going to die. In fact, we live in a backwards culture among all that I could tell throughout human civilization. Most of human civilization to this point has let the kids be kids and the elders become elders and the kids want to become like the elders because they're mature and wise. We live in a particular society where the elders want to become like Justin Bieber, <laughs> where the older people want to become kids. Right? We don't want to face the fact that there is a hourglass on this world. One philosopher put it very crassly and said, because of the fact that death comes for us all, you can't enjoy anything. I don't know if I particularly buy into that, but here's what he said. Basically, it's meaningless. If I was to give you a billion dollars on a credit card and say, enjoy, do whatever you want, and in one day, your life will be demanded of you, and you will die. 
have fun, enjoy the billion dollars, eat everything you want, listen to the great music, travel as far as you can, do it all, but in 24 hours, it's all over. Good luck, you're not gonna enjoy any of that because you know that it's all going to end. That's a microcosm of our lives is what this philosopher says. And so we don't wanna think about it and we don't. We create strategies to avoid it. On one hand, we live in denial. You know, let's not talk about death. I think as San Diegans, we do this better than anybody. Let's eat and drink and be, let's just, let's just go have some fun. Let's not focus on the deeper stuff and be like a stone skipping across the pond on the surface but not get too deep about it. We deny it. Or we sentimentalize it. We say, oh, well, death is just a natural part of life and it's like one drop, you know, your life is one droplet slipping off into the great ocean and it's this beautiful part of the cycle of life until someone you love dies suddenly. And then you say, that's not right. Because you're being honest in that moment. It's not right. It makes it worse when someone comes up and says, well, this is just a part of it. Because there's a part of you that knows that it's not. So we try denial. We try sentimentalizing it. We try just to anesthetize it with more entertainment. We speed things up. We drink things up. We eat things up. We overwork. We do everything we can to not feel it. To not feel the, the concern or the sorrow. But scripture actually gives us a different way. It describes death in 1 Corinthians 15 as an enemy. So it doesn't deny it. It doesn't sentimentalize it. It says it's an enemy. It's the last enemy. And it describes death as a defeated enemy. Death is not your friend. And death does not have the final word. A defeated enemy. In that moment... The Apostle Paul, who was well acquainted with death all around him and ended up giving his life because of his witness to the gospel, is able to taunt death and say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? A new courage altogether. And what we learn is resurrection is not just a doctrine. Resurrection is not just a future fact or hope. What Martha is realizing in this moment is resurrection is a person and he's standing right in front of her. Jesus does not have the secret key that overcomes death. Jesus is the one that overcomes death. And the closer she can get to him, the closer she gets to that resurrection life. He's challenging her. He's urging her. He's compelling her and you and me to exchange the if only to if Jesus. Meaning... Instead of, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If Jesus really is the resurrection life come into this world, then I can have hope. Then I can lament and I can mourn without losing myself down the deep, dark tunnel. I can move toward the pain points of this world knowing that it's not on me to be the savior of all things, but I play one small part in a greater constellation of renewal that's breaking forth in the midst of the old. What would it look for you to preach the gospel to your own heart? Especially in the pain points or confusing parts of your life and say, if Jesus really is for me and not against me, then. If Jesus really is the resurrection life, then I can have hope here. Now, I mentioned to you, he ministers to Martha and Mary in the ways that they absolutely need themselves. The ministry of truth and tears. All truth and no tears, 
That's not very helpful. All tears and no truth, also not that helpful. Mary, or Martha is the doer. She's the forward-leaning activator, and she needs truth, and he confronts her with it. Mary comes to him, the ponderer, the thinker. She comes to him and says the exact same thing. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But he responds entirely differently. What does he do? He doesn't give her a treatise on the resurrection. He simply breaks down and weeps with her. Think about that. The Word made flesh, the one through whom all creation was brought into being, stops at the grave of his friend Lazarus and cries with his friend Mary. My friends, that's at the heart of the mystery of the gospel. The all-power, ever-living, everlasting God breaks down and weeps with you, knows you, enters into your story. He loves you. So on one hand, it's a God who comforts you in all of your questions. And he then makes you someone who can go forward and weep with others. You know what I've noticed? Is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, people who have experienced the greatest tragedy or loss or sorrow are the best at comforting other people who are going through their own difficulties. The people who have experienced the greatest tragedy or loss or sorrow are the best at comforting other people going through their own difficulties. In other words, as you become somebody who Jesus weeps with, you become someone who can move forward to weep with others. You become approachable in moments of need. Now here's the thing. I don't just need a God who weeps at the grave. And you don't just want a God with tears for you. You want nothing less than tears, I would imagine, but you want a whole lot more than tears. Jesus comes after death and does something about it. Jesus, seeing Mary and Martha at the coffin, and us at all of the coffins in our lives, doesn't just weep. He gets mad and he moves out. He redeems the suffering and the pain. Here's where we see it. There's this part in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Okay? Greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. This is this great Greek construction that talks about not just he's angry or he's sad or he's cranky. It's talking about having a gut reaction to something. It's almost like an, uh, a carnal, like animalistic anger towards something is what's going on for Jesus right here. It's, he's greatly disturbed. The, the, the connotations are like snorting or bellowing or having rage like an animal who's in pain. Why do you think he's having that response? Here's what I think. He's standing at the grave of his friend, on one hand weeping with his friends, relationally weeping, 
At the same time, he's standing as the author of all creation, and he is furious at death. Death is an enemy. It's a defeated enemy, but it's an enemy, and it is robbing creation in front of him, and he's angry about it. Some of you are artists. Imagine you had created this beautiful piece of music, and in the midst of all of it, someone stands up and just blows an air horn the whole time. You're furious because your art is being violated. Some of you are painters. You create this beautiful painting, and someone comes in with a sharpie and draws mustaches all over it. You're furious because your artwork has been violated. Some of you have children in your lives, and that child comes home from school on the week of Halloween when they're allowed to wear their costume to school, and they come home in tears, and they just say, what was wrong? And they say, I wore my costume, and I loved it, but all the kids made fun of me, especially this one kid, and they teased me, and they bullied me, and you're saying, let me at it, because you love your child, and it makes you furious to see them wronged. Jesus stands as the author of creation, greatly disturbed all the way to the core because he's seeing his creation violated. He's weeping and he's disturbed in spirit and he does something about it. Jesus knows that to raise Lazarus from the dead, he will be signing his own death warrant. Jesus knows that this will be a definitive act from which he cannot step back he will be displaying his resurrection power in a way that nobody can erase or omit. In fact, in the verses that weren't read that come after this passage, the religious authorities begin to plot to kill him. It's in that moment that the religious high priest says, it is better that one man should give his life for the entire community than the entire community suffer, not knowing, ironically, that he was revealing what Jesus would do on the cross for the whole world. Jesus knows if I bring Lazarus out of the grave, I will bury myself. The only way for me to interrupt this funeral is to cause my own funeral. And he willingly does it. A God who hears your tears, who cries with you, who confronts you with the truth of the resurrection, and then does something about it. And he does it willingly. In his death and resurrection, he will take the power of sin and death. He will take all that vandalism upon himself. He will take all the injustice upon himself. And he will deal a death blow to death itself. What would be different? If the way that you view the disappointment in your life or the pain in your life right now, if you could see that he not only weeps with you, but he is now working toward renewing it and one day will renew it completely. And if you need an image of that, you look at the empty tomb of the resurrection and you say, even death could not stop his love for me and so I can walk through this moment with tears and with truth, with refreshing honesty and dazzling hope. You can be someone who is both comforted in your tears and becomes a comforter toward others in theirs. This is the invitation of the tears at the tomb. This is the sign that he is the one who's healing all things. And just one last point as we conclude here. Note how he ministers to the crowd. Verse 42, he's praying to God the Father. He would imagine he had this open line of communication with. And he says, Father, I know you always hear me. 
I'm praying for the sake of everybody in here right now who hears me, so that they would know that you sent me, that I am who I said that I am. And John, the gospel writer, includes you and me in that crowd by virtue of the fact we have this scripture. In other words, Jesus, praying to the Father at the tomb of Lazarus, says, I know you always hear me, Father. I'm saying this so that all of these people on 30th Street in 2022 could know that I am who I say I am. All these people who are joining in online at Renew Church can know that I'm not just tears and I'm not just truth. I am the resurrection life in person, and you can trust me. Friends, that's the invitation, to trust him in the midst of our difficulties and then to move forward into this world with all its beauty and brokenness and wonder and tragedy, holding together the dazzling hope of the resurrection and the refreshing honesty of the difficulty of this world, all in the picture of his great love for us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you would convince us of your great love for us. Open our eyes to your grace and our ears to your truth, our hearts to your love. Wherever it feels like there's a dead end in our life right now, help us to be honest about that with our, ourselves and with you, with each other. Give us the grace to allow you to be the one who confronts us both with truth and with tears. Give us the courage to go out and be comforters toward others and break through and convince us of your resurrection power and life right now. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.